Time for swordplay. Alex, David Platt prayed for President Donald Trump on stage at McLean Bible Church after the president made an unannounced visit to that church. Hey, what would you do if Donald Trump showed up at your house church? Well, first, Nick, I would ask him if he brought anything for potluck. (laughs) And if the Donald shows up empty-handed, I'd be like, you're fired. (laughs) There it is. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Ruth Chapter 4, and Alex, we have our work cut out for us here as we put on our lawyer caps and do our best Perry Mason impersonation. (laughs) That's right. And uh, as you could tell from the intro, impersonations are not my forte, so (laughs) we're going to do the best we can with what we got. We're on the end of the book of Ruth, so go back and let that be a reminder to the audience. Read the book of Ruth. Read it all the way through this time. Even if you've already read it before, come back. We're going to dig into the trenches here, get into the mire and the muck, and it's uh, it's dicey. So why don't you come join us and try to figure this stuff out. What do we got, Nick? It looks like verse 1 mm-hmm. starts out with Boaz going up to the city gates, right? Because chapter 3 we left off with, um, he means business. He's going to settle this kinsman-redeemer matter immediately. So he goes up to the city gates, and I was wondering, Nick, is there anything significant about being at the city gates? Why would this be the place he would go? Yeah, he will not rest, and he literally doesn't. He goes up to the city gates, shows the position, I think, of the city gates. They were uphill as opposed to when uh, Ruth went down to the threshing floor in 3 verse 3 and verse 6 also. It was at the city gates that official, administrative, and judicial activities took place, so And we see that, right? Boaz took, in verse 2, he takes 10 elders. And this sort of solemnizes this event as legal proceedings as well as showing just how important uh, this transaction is. And what's going to take place is liberate law. And uh, that's what we're going to witness here. The application of it, and it is different. We'll talk about some of those differences as we go. But... Leverate law did not specify how many witnesses were required. And under the law, you have the provision for two or three witnesses that would suffice. So Boaz getting 10 guys, 10 of the elders involved, man, there's there's some something very serious that's taking place here. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Nothing underhanded would happen with so many witnesses about, especially elders. Um, one way to remember what the gates of a city were like, It was like uh, the modern-day city hall. I mean, it was a marketplace, it was a courtroom, it was a podium for preaching, it was a social hub, it was a security checkpoint. So if you want to get business done, uh, you're likely going to end up at the city gate at some point in time. Well, Nick, what is unique then as Boaz sits in the gate and he sees, finally, as he's waiting, for this other, closer kinsman redeemer to show up what's unique about how boaz addresses this kinsman redeemer turn aside friend sit down here that's how he addresses him we don't even know the guy's name boaz uh when he hails this guy down um and and his address has caused uh, fits for translators poloni almoni what does that mean in the from the original hebrew did you say phony baloney yeah, that's right. Phony blowing. <laughs> um, it, it is um, akin to, I think, our Mr. So-and-so. 
uh, in English. In fact, the New English translation actually translates this as John Doe with a footnote that says that this could be translated as Mr. No Name. And English is not the only language that has difficulty with this phrase. The Septuagint translates it to, oh, stranger. The Vulgate sidesteps the issue entirely, just with the ambiguous phrase, he called him by name. And so the ambiguity uh, concerning this man's name is appropriate, given that many names are going to conclude this chapter, but this guy does nothing of significance. He even refuses to perform the duty of the kinsman redeemer. And so, fittingly, he is just Mr. So-and-so. That makes sense? Oh, yeah, Mr. So-and-so. I like that. You know, it's um, it's like that guy who always says hi to you. He's super nice, and you can't ever remember his name, so you're like, hey, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you. <laughs> you're great. How you doing? <laughs> well, verse 3, Nick. Um Boaz says that Naomi needs to sell this land. Now, wait, wait, wait. Did Naomi already sell the land, or is it still hers? I don't understand what's going on with the redeeming factor here. How does this affect uh, Leviticus 25.25 that talks about redeeming property? Right. And so here's the scenario I'm kicking. There's a lot that can happen in a year or ten. And it sounds like... And perhaps it seems reasonable that in the decades since the family moved to Moab, that the parcel of land that was Elimelech's had fallen into the hands of someone outside the family. And they were using the land however they deemed fit. They were essentially squatters, it would seem. And so Naomi could not just automatically reclaim the land as a widow and... um, Uh, So on the other hand, here's Naomi, and the text says she is selling in the English Standard Version. That would indicate, seems to indicate, that she had once more come into possession of the parcel, though we don't really have any any information about that, how she acquired it. Um, Under the law, there was provision that was made for cases like Naomi where Squatters moved in, used the land, Leviticus 25, 13 through 16, also verses 29 through 31, uh, and how in the year Jubilee, things would kick back. Um, So it could be, maybe it is that Naomi came back in the year Jubilee, and now this land has come to her from the squatters, and now she's trying to get the usage rights of it transferred to the kinsman redeemer, uh, or it could be she's trying that the squatters are still there in anticipation of the year of Jubilee. Uh, she's trying to not so much sell the land, but again, authorize the court to get the usage rights passed to the kinsman redeemer, again, in anticipation of the uh, coming year of Jubilee. A lot of legal technical stuff that uh, we just we don't have a lot of information on here in the story, but we're trying to do our best to reconstruct a scenario here. Do you have a scenario for us, Alex, that you, makes more sense than mine? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to put together a different hypothetical, and that's what these are. They're hypotheticals because it does say that Naomi has to sell the land that belonged to her husband. And so I'm going to take it at face value, and I'm going to say it's hers, right? And um, I'm going to assume that it's hers. It was always hers, but apparently she cannot keep it. So that's the first question. Why can't she keep it? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. Maybe she can't afford to hire workers to work the land. 
Um, she's old. She's a widow. Uh, you know, farming's hard work. There may have been some sort of law that said the land must be worked. Uh, so I, I don't know. But the importance seems to be placed on the fact that the land must stay within the family line of Elimelech. That's the uh, focus of the scenario here. However, the scenario doesn't quite fit Leviticus 25.25 because that scenario in Leviticus 25 is talking about you fell on hard times, you're poor, so you sold the land, but you sold the land to somebody outside the family. And so somebody within the family can come along and buy it back for you. So that way it stays within the family line. And of course, in the year of Jubilee, as you mentioned, Nick, it will revert back to the family line eventually. Um, Naomi hasn't sold anything yet, though. That's that's the situation I'm putting forth, is that it's hers. She hasn't sold it yet. Uh, there's nothing that needs to be bought back. There's nothing to redeem. And so what I think is going on is I think they're skipping over the whole selling part. They're saying, hey, Naomi has to sell this. She's a widow. She's poor. And if she sells it, somebody is going to have to buy this back eventually, whether it's me or you, your closer relative, so you have the first dibs. Um, but if it's sold to someone else besides us, then we got to go through all this hassle. So let's just redeem it now. Let's just buy it now, skip the whole middleman process. And if that's what happened, then this, much like the rest of the chapter, uh, I don't think has uh, much legal precedent in the law of Moses. I think we're looking at laws and proceedings that have been adapted from the law, but don't rightly describe what the law says. And hey, you know, it's the time of the judges. People are doing what they think is right in their own eyes. <laughs> so, yeah. Crazy. Hey, let's, let's press forward to verse right, 3 right. and talk about um, one thing that Boaz says here. He calls Elimelech. Mine says our relative. Yours, I think, says our brother. Right. Um why does Boaz call Elimelech our brother? Um, let's see. This is in verse 3 still. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, my translation says our brother. And um, what does the Septuagint say? D did you look that up? It's no, uh, but I got our it. Our relative, here. yeah. It says our relative. And so I think what this shows here is that um, perhaps our brother, our relative, could be considered the same thing. So they weren't literally brothers of Elimelech, but that's the way he's described as both to himself and to Mr. So-and-so. So they're in the same family line. They are relatives. That's the kinsman uh, redeemer language and what qualifies them to, to redeem the land. They're not actual brothers, but they're brothers from other mothers uh, hmm. within the family tree. And this is significant because it could explain the adaptation that we see here of the Leverite marriage law. Uh, it was a brother who was to perform the Leverite marriage for a deceased brother. But if one interprets brother to be relative, aha, then we have more of a basis for what happens here in the book of Ruth. They have expanded the law to cover a broader range of scenarios. What do you think, Nick? Which, um, for me, yeah, we're, since there's no hard, firm legal precedent to fall back on where I'm going to fall with this. I think while they, you don't have the letter of the law maintained, you do have the spirit of the law. And that's, that's kind of how I'm going to view a lot of the, the Leverett uh, law transaction and everything that's going to happen here with 
Ruth and Boaz. They're they're. It is the time of the judges, and yet here is a Moabite and also an Israelite, and they're doing their best to try and uphold the spirit of the law. That's uh, right. They don't have the letter of the law, so yeah, I think I think that's right about brother and relative there. Well, Nick, in verse 3, another thing here. Why would Boaz, as he's talking to Mr. So-and-so, why would he initially initially leave out the information regarding Ruth? He just mentions the land first. Why would he do that? Yeah, that's right. That's weird. <laughs> uh, one commentator suggests Boaz didn't want to appear as though he were bringing this uh, this whole scenario up to John Doe on behalf of the widow. Meh. Others suggest that Naomi only is mentioned here, uh, the only one mentioned here, since she is directing the negotiations. And Boaz, he wanted to avoid the suspicion of needing to marry the foreign woman before first making the offer. It just may be that, like us, uh, Boaz was doing his best Perry Mason impersonation, and long before Perry Mason was a thing, Boaz had a flair for the dramatic in court proceedings. And so here we are talking about the land. Uh, but, oh, there's one more thing. I guess that's more of a Columbo thing. Um, there's one more thing. There's this widow that uh, Ruth the Moabite, you need to marry her too. I don't know. Just kind of a surprise thing. What do you think? I think Boaz is a shrewd businessman. So what Boaz really wants is Ruth. He doesn't need the land. He's got plenty of land. We've already seen that. He's, he's well-to-do. Uh, you don't walk into negotiations showing your hand right off the bat, right? So Boaz, how could he know for sure whether this other relative would be interested in marrying Ruth or not? Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. If not, that's great. But if he is, uh, why take the risk by starting off with mentioning Ruth? If the other relative doesn't want the land, ah, no need to mention Ruth. But ah... Mr. So-and-so does indeed want the land. So now it's time to bring in the rest of the story and mention (laughs) Ruth. Uh, So verse 4, Boaz saying, look, you know, I thought I'd tell you, hey, buy the land in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. That's interesting. Boaz Talking about my people instead. Before it was our brother, our relative, now it's my people. Why does Boaz say my people instead of our people? Yeah, this is a conundrum. Um, If the two men are relatives of the same family line, then they're both Israelites of Bethlehem, Judah. And the only answers I can think of are one, this is a textual problem in the manuscripts, a minor textual problem, but still one nonetheless. Or two, uh, Boaz is referring to the elders as his people, since he is the one who gathered them together for this proceeding. So in other words, this Mr. So-and-so, he's just walking into the city gates, right? He hasn't prepared for this meeting. And so who are the people gathered here? That's the people Boaz has gathered in anticipation. So that may be what's going on with here, but it is a little confusing, especially uh, through your casual reading. My people, what is this? this? Hmm. So anyway, well, Nick, when we look at the proceeding here, that takes place. Why do you think the Redeemer, Mr. So-and-so here, why do you think he refuses to redeem the land after he said he would, but then he hears about Ruth and he says, no, I changed my mind. And he says, it'll ruin my inheritance. Why would it ruin his inheritance? What do you think, Nick? Uh, So one commentator summed up 
John Doe's fourfold dilemma here. And so, first, he here, here are some scenarios. He could, both, John Doe could redeem the land, marry Ruth, take care of Naomi. That's that's possible. He, he could do that. Uh, the second, well, he could redeem the land, promise to marry Ruth, but then back out of that commitment once the deal was done. He had the land, and hey, I don't want her. The third, he could refuse to redeem the land and pass the right on to Boaz, something Boaz has already expressed interest in. And then fourth and finally, he could redeem the land and then let Boaz fulfill the Leveret obligation. But that could hurt him in the long run financially if Boaz and Ruth have a son. That son would inherit the land John Doe had paid for. And so I think there's two things that factor in here. One is John Doe may have done some quick math on the fly about the cost of redeeming the land, supporting Naomi, marrying Ruth, and it didn't seem fiscally feasible, economically responsible to him. And the second thing he may have thought of was that any child or children born from Ruth would have claim to John Doe's property. And all his property then would ultimately fall into the the name of Elimelech. Essentially his own name disappears. And so he didn't want that to happen. So that could be what's going on here with uh, his refusal after hearing about Ruth and the ruination of his inheritance and all that, what he's talking about there. What say you? You know, Nick, I really don't get it. (laughs) I just don't get it. If Mr. So-and-so redeems the land and marries Ruth, sure, uh, Ruth's child would get the land and that child would grow up, take care of Naomi, and carry on the name of Elimelech. However, that child is still Mr. So-and-so's. It's still his kid. (laughs) You know, it's still his. Why would he mind if his own children got the land? Just because of the name? And besides, if you look carefully at Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, it says it's just the firstborn son of the Leverate marriage that carries on the name of the deceased. The rest of the sons would be his. They'd be his heirs, his name of the kinsman redeemer. You know what I think, Nick? I think Mr. So-and-so doesn't want to marry Ruth because he hears that she's a Moabite. (gasps) Racist. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think it has anything to do with money. I think that he makes up a lame excuse to get out of the deal. But really what the story reveals is that the least likable character in the whole book is the one guy who has reservations concerning Ruth. Mm. Mr. So-and-so is the bad guy. Wow. That's what's going on in the narrative. So, something to think about. Something to think about. Verse 6, though, Nick, the way this Redeemer responds, do you think that's shameful? Yeah, so going back to the fourfold dilemma um, of those four options that were given, it seems numbers 2 and 4 would be shameful. Uh where he redeems the land, promises to marry Ruth, but then backs out. That would be shameful. And then uh, fourth, redeem the land, but let Boaz fulfill the Leveret obligation. Um, And so 
factoring in again the financial considerations, the ethical implications. John Doe chooses the third option, and he does so emphatically twice. He says, I can't redeem it, and then he tells Boaz, take my right of redemption for yourself. So uh, he, he takes, um, he, he takes the, the least offensive route, it seems, in order to get out of this little dilemma that he's in. And so since Boaz, he's already expressed interest in fulfilling the role of the kinsman redeemer, the decision that the kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, John Doe makes, seems reasonable and responsible for him. And you say? Shame, shame, I know your name. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Actually, we don't know his name because apparently it wasn't worth remembering. There you go. Ironic, right? How the guy who refuses to carry on his relative's name gets his own name erased. Aha. Uh -huh. You know, I think his response it was indeed shameful. And he's lucky that it's the time of the judges where they aren't exactly sticking to the script of the law, right? Because if they were, he'd be before the elders and the gates in front of everybody. He'd have his little sandal removed, spit in his face, and his whole household would be called the sandalless household forever. That's right. And so, yeah, this is this is the bad guy. His response is shameful. Uh, you know, you got every good every good story needs a bad guy, and this is it. This is him. This is his role, and it makes Boaz all the more the uh, righteous uh, redeemer. So verse 7 is kind of a little parenthetical. Um, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging <clears throat> to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, gave to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So... Alex, what does the, this little parenthetical statement here in verse 7 imply about the author's own day? Yeah, uh, this brings the subject of authorship back into the conversation because the author's own day is obviously some time, like way into the future from Ruth's own day. Uh, would such a custom that they're describing your your receipt of purchase is somebody's shoe. Uh, <laughs> would such a custom be completely lost and forgotten and foreign within just a few generations? Uh, if the book of Ruth was written during Samuel's lifetime, I mean, you know, Ruth is David's great-great-grandmother, right? Well, is that really enough time for such a common practice to completely disappear and to be unknown or unheard of? Mm, maybe. You know, if you're going to go with the uh, date of authorship to put this book of Ruth here, maybe during the time of the exile, the Babylonian exile, uh, this verse becomes axiomatic if you're going to go that route. This would be the verse you would camp on. You'd be like, nope, there's no way this was during Samuel's time. This is way, way into the uh, time of Babylonian exile. And that's that's where you'd have to camp. So I just thought we'd throw that out there so our audience knows ahead of time, you know, if they... If they see debates about this in the future, they know where it's coming from. Well, and the other thing to, I mean, it only took one pharaoh after the one that knew Joseph for a pharaoh to rise up that didn't know Joseph. Um, the other thing that comes to mind, uh, isn't it earlier? Yeah, it's in Judges where a whole generation grows up that doesn't know the Lord. I mean, one generation, you're one generation away from... I mean, forgetting stuff that was in the law, right? So, 
Yep, that would probably be the comeback, right? To <laughs> the early versus late date right. argument. Yeah, very good. Uh, verses 7 and 8, this is kind of uh, it's almost like a summary. You know, when you compare the proceedings that happened here in the gates of the city, and you compare what happens here in Ruth with what is described and prescribed in the law, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 25, you know, did they do the ritual wrong? Or is something else going on here? Why does this not quite match up, Nick? Right. So, I mean, this could be our tough text, right? This That's is right. This is the the legal rabbit hole here that we get to chase. In former times, uh, there in verse 7, that may indicate that the practice, for one reason or another, had fallen out of use at the time of uh, the writing. Uh, and... Kyle and DeLeach, who've they've written an Old Testament, and it used to be the standard Old Testament commentary, they explain that the sandal, that became the symbol of transference, uh, the symbol of transference of property, because it was understood that you took possession of property by walking upon it with your foot, your sandaled foot. And so... Um, I think that's part of the reason why the sandal's so important. But absent from the court proceedings here on this day are several elements that are found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 9 and 10. The woman being the agent of sandal remover, removal, she's not there, uh, neither Ruth nor Naomi. The spitting in the face, the solemn declaration, so shall it be done, and all the rest. The changing of the name to the unsandaled family. None of that is there. Uh, of course, technically, uh, Ruth is not his brother's wife. So the whole legal scene plays out, again, not according to the letter of the law, but according to the spirit of the law. Elimelech's land will stay in the family. The widows, Naomi and Ruth, will be cared for. The lineage will continue. Everything intended by the law is upheld. Uh, so I think that's what's going on here, is here's a worthy man and a worthy woman, Boaz and Ruth, and she's a Moabite, so she's not even part of the covenanted people, and yet they're doing their best to uphold the law and maintain it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And I mean, to me, the biggest thing is the whole sandal thing, right? Like. In the law, removing the sandal is like a mark of shame and punishment and uh, public humiliation. But in here, it's just a receipt. It's a it's a title that you signed over to somebody. You know, it's 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 nothing more than a than an item which witnesses to the transaction. That's very very different. That's very different. And so there is no shaming that takes place upon the closer relative. And yet. As I said before, I think he acted shamefully. You know, we're definitely in um, legal improv territory, right? They're improvising. And as I said before, neither Leviticus 25 nor Deuteronomy 25 uh, accurately describe what plays out in this story. Uh, I agree, though, Nick. You're right. The spirit of the law is carried out, and that's why I think in the law, God gives Israel judges and elders and officers and priests and tribal leaders, etc. Because just like today, uh, leaders within the church, they often have to make judgment calls. 
because they run into everyday real life scenarios that don't always have a book chapter and verse that conforms exactly to what they're having to deal with. Does that make sense? I mean, um, this plays into even tough texts and uh, controversial issues in modern day theology. You think, you know, the hot button issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, right? We have verses on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but do we have verses that cover every scenario that would ever happen? to somebody's marriage, divorce, or remarriage. We don't. Yes, we, we don't. do. There you go. <laughs> and that, But that's, hey, that's real life. I mean, that's and that's true. There are some who think that God has spoken to every single possible scenario and situation. Um, the reality is there are principles, I think, that undergird everything we do, but as... We don't have we don't have uh, instruction teaching on proper usage of the internet. They didn't have the internet back then, but I think there are, are undergirding and guiding principles that dictate what we do online. Just and I think that's what's going on here. You have an undergirding principle about justice for uh, widows. Undergirding yeah. principles about the land yep. um, and and the family and and that's what gets maintained that spirit of the laws we're talking about that's right nick is recreational marijuana legal in california yet i yes yes it is it is yeah i've got my card no i'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) well well, once they uh get on the the bandwagon with colorado and washington and whatnot um where's your book chapter and verse that says thou shall not smoke marijuana yeah it's it's legal Right, but is it moral? Exactly. And how do you know it's immoral exactly. if you say it's immoral? Yeah. You know, it's funny. There are going to be a lot of verses that people are all of a sudden going to remember about being sober-minded once that <laughs> once true. that topic lands on your front door. Right. Once it's relevant to you, you're going to start taking some of those verses more seriously, and that's going to backtrack us back into old debates concerning other mind-altering substances. But that is neither here nor there. We'll see what happens for another time. <laughs> for the time being. Yeah. That's swordplay after hours. That's right. <laughs> you have to subscribe to our Patreon to get that get that discussion right. <laughs> That's right. We don't have that. That's ridiculous. Um, verse eleven, Nick. Yeah. There's a mention of Ephratha. Is yeah. this a place? What is what is Ephratha? Yeah, that's that's a city from which the city actually from which Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons hailed from. One verse two talks about that. It is usually identified with Bethlehem. And so, uh, best I can tell, Ephratha appears to have been like a suburb of Bethlehem, I think, even though Bethlehem itself was tiny. So that's kind of a weird thing to have a suburb of this tiny little podunk town. But anyway, yeah. that's that's what I found. What did you find? Interesting how specific that is, because you know, New Testament update, Jesus will be born in that same suburb. Yeah. According right. to Micah 5.2, anyway, that was the prophecy. <clears throat> Well, Nick, uh, curiously, the blessings that the people are uh, now showering upon Boaz and Ruth, uh, one of the things they say is, uh, we hope you're like Judah and Tamar. Hmm. Why are Judah and Tamar mentioned in verse 12, Nick? Uh, So if you don't know who they are, go back and read Genesis 38. Um, Spoiler alert. There's sin in every verse in that chapter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's R-rated. For yeah, sure. <laughs> it's it's very crooked. The stuff that's happening there. So it's weird that in their 
invocation, as it were. They're like, they're recalling this very sordid affair between Judah and Tamar. This could be the tough text. Yeah, it could be. That's right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, Judah and Tamar, my read of Genesis 38, is that this is actually another earlier Leverate law case that um, Judah, that, that of Judah and Tamar. He, the, the, the phrase comes up here in 38 verse 8 that um, uh, Judah says to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, raise up offspring for your brother. Language that is very similar if not in some cases verbatim, to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, that Leveret Law marriage uh, text there. Um, other than that, there's there's no connection between Judah and Boaz or Tamar and Ruth because Boaz and Ruth, they're upright. And the closest that you get to righteousness in Judah and Tamar's story is him saying, she's more righteous than me, more just. It seems like the blessing here should be understood through the lens of a lesser to greater. In other words, if Yahweh had blessed the sordid union of Judah and Tamar with a double portion, then certainly he will bless Boaz and Ruth, who are models of a high ethical standard. Plus, Perez, he's a distant relative of Boaz. I think it's his, if I counted it right, great, 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 great granddaddy. So there's that connection as well. What say you, Alex? Well, I think the Leverite law seems to be unfulfilled in Tamar's case. Mm. So that's what's so confusing. Because Judah's son, Ur, that was Tamar's husband. And all it says is that he was evil, so Yahweh killed him. (laughs) And then Ur's brother, Onan, uh, he went to go uh, fulfill the brother's, you know, uh, duty but uh, he did not want to do that. And so that was evil, and Yahweh killed him. Hmm. <laughs> and so Judah's last living son, Shelah, was promised to Tamar, but never delivered. You can imagine at this point, Judah was pretty paranoid. Yeah. So one might. My son marrying this black widow. Yeah, yeah. So one might say that Judah fulfills the Leverite marriage, but. It's unintentional, and it's through means of deception and sexual immorality. And he's also not a brother. That was his son. So, so I mean, it's just there's so many disconnects. It doesn't fit. But my beef is, is that Judah, even if you say he's the Leverite, he's the Redeemer, he never actually marries Tamar. Nope. It never happens. He wouldn't even sleep with her again. It, Listen, he wouldn't have slept with her in the first place had he known it was Tamar. It was because he didn't know it was Tamar that he slept with her. He thought it was a prostitute. And in fact, according to Genesis 38, 26, he never sleeps with her again. It was just right. that one time. And so even later in 1 Chronicles 2, 4, like way later, right? Tamar is mentioned, but not as Judah's wife, as Judah's daughter-in-law. Mm. And so there's no, I mean, there's just no way Leverite marriage can be... Um, stuffed into this situation none of it fits the puzzle does not fit (laughs) the pieces don't fit so the twins you know Perez Zara they're born to Tamar through this one sexual encounter with Judah nothing about the story seems to fit the live right law there's a loose connection at best maybe but I think the better connection here's what's really going on in my opinion seems to be with who Tamar is 
she's a Gentile. She's a Gentile. Now, it's been hotly debated over the centuries, Nick, whether Tamar was a Gentile or not. Uh, those who say no, they'll point to how Judah wanted her burned to death for being uh, pregnant out of wedlock. Uh, that was the punishment for the daughter of any priest who committed harlotry. And so they'll say, thus, Tamar must have been the daughter of an Israelite priest. However, that is incredibly anachronistic. It's, it's out of order because the priesthood does not exist during Judah's time. The priesthood comes when the law of Moses comes. Uh, so pointing to the law of Moses to prove that Tamar was the daughter of a priest, that's a moot point. It's anachronistic. The priesthood wasn't established until the time of Moses through his brother Aaron. So I say yes. Tamar was a Gentile. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, contemporary uh, first century New Testament authors, he thought the same thing. And showing that this interpretation, it could be in the mind of Matthew, right? When we get to the New Testament, because uh, there's a connection between Tamar and Ruth in Matthew chapter 1. Both are Gentiles, and I think that's precisely um, the, the point behind Ruth 4.12, there's an invoking of Yahweh's blessing upon Ruth and Boaz in the same way that Yahweh blessed Judah and Tamar because Tamar was a Gentile woman, but she was seen to be righteous. Uh, that's another hard one to explain, but we have another Gentile woman, Ruth, a Moabite, who is seen to be righteous. And so it's Yahweh uh, continuing the lineage of Israelite men through the inclusion of Gentile women. Now, remember, the entire narrative of Ruth has been building up this case for why Ruth, a Moabite, is a righteous woman. Here's the New Testament update. Matthew's genealogy includes four women, actually, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. The fact that, Tam that Matthew would use these names of, of women and not others like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah, I think that says something significant, that the Messiah is thus fit to be savior of the world, both Jew and Gentile, because his male ancestry are all Israelites. But Gentiles are still in his genealogy. And so I think even way back here in the stories of Judah and Tamar and Boaz and Ruth, which leads to David, which leads to Messianic promises, you have Yahweh acting on the scene, preparing the way for Messiah. That's what I think. Any thoughts, Nick? Well, you're, you're just flat wrong that there's no liver at marriage there, <laughs> law application with Judah and Tamar. But <clears throat> there's not. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. There's no connection. That, well, loose connection. Everybody that I read was writing that, that that talks about the Judah Tamar case. They see they see some connection there, and just about every rabbi worth his. Salt. Kosher salt. <laughs> yeah, kosher salt saw, saw a connection there as well, which is interesting because uh, just like they didn't have – just like reading um, the priesthood from the Law of Moses back anachronistically into the Judah uh, Tamar thing, uh, the same thing could be said about Leveret Law marriage. And yet they still had this understanding that um, – these things ought to be done. You ought to do the duty of your of the brother-in-law, right? Very, very interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of things in Genesis act as um, case law for substantiating what will be codified in the law of Moses. But you can't read that back into the story. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the anachronistic part. And so 
uh, it's, it's kind of like today, you know, when we make a law because something evoked the need for this law to exist. Yeah, here's here's a bad case. Yeah. Let's never do this again. Right, right. <laughs> uh, 4 verse 13. Uh, Boaz took Ruth, so married. The Lord granted her pregnancy, and she delivered a son. Alex, what do you think? Could Ruth not conceive before she married Boaz? Well, as we alluded to in chapter 1, apparently not. Though she was married to Malin for 10 years... Uh, which, by the way, now we get to see which brother she was married to. Right. Uh, though she was married to Malin for 10 years, she's never said to have any children. And the fact that Yahweh specifically said here in this verse to enable her to conceive, that leads the reader to a significant point. If Yahweh blesses this barren woman with a child, then she must be considered worthy of being included with Israel. And her descendants thus are saved from any defilement in the eyes of Yahweh. Now the people in the story, they've already acknowledged to Boaz in the previous verse that they hope for Yahweh's blessing upon his marriage to Ruth. And their expectations are soon met. You know, when I was looking back at our previous podcast notes, Nick, I realized that we did have an oversight. Uh, the most damning verse for the Moabites and thus Ruth, would actually be Deuteronomy 23, verses right. 3 through 6. That's right. And we forgot this. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a big deal. It is. It's a big deal. So in those verses, Moabites are banned from ever entering the assembly of Yahweh, even Yeesh. to the 10th generation, in other words, forever. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. uh, the only way around this prohibition for Ruth would be, number one, if the law was only applied to Moabite men, or number two, if Yahweh is allowed to make exceptions, especially if the exception that he makes is in line with what he considers to be righteous and just, which would be consistent with his own character. So the book of Ruth is the official case made for an exception based on Ruth being righteous and just. And so that's that's the way I lean towards. I think, no, they knew Moabites were prohibited from entering Israel's assembly forever. And I think they knew that was both men and women, especially thinking about what happened at Beth Peor. And But Yahweh, he makes an exception. And the exception doesn't invalidate his word. It doesn't mean he lied. It doesn't mean he broke his promise. It doesn't mean he's not consistent with his character. It's quite the opposite. He's being consistent with his character by upholding righteousness and justice, which means that if Yahweh is allowed to carry out the spirit of the law, <laughs> then maybe Yahweh's people are allowed to carry out the spirit of the law as well, even if it's not to the letter of the law. Now, that's powerful. It gives you something to chew on. Yeah, that's right. Hey, let's talk about the celebration that comes, verses 14 through 17 here. And the focus is on Naomi. Not Boaz, not Ruth. It's on Naomi. So why does the celebration focus on Naomi? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I think this is taking a step back and it's showing you what the story really is. It's a story of divine reversal. And the one who needed reversal was Naomi. God used a Moabite woman to reverse the, misfortunate, the misfortune of an Israelite. And this story is the, it's like the very antithesis of the infamous Beth Peor incident where the Moabite women were used to curse the Israelites. Here, a Moabite woman is used to bless the Israelites. Uh, we see that Naomi, though not recorded as saying anything, no dialogue on her part, by her actions, I think the reader can assume 
that she acknowledges she's she's not Mara. She's not bitter. Yahweh's not against her. And how does she know? Well, first of all, all the neighboring women keep reminding her, look how blessed you are. Look how look how great Ruth is to you. Better than seven sons. <laughs> yeah. And second of all, Naomi can hardly doubt her blessings as she looks down at the baby boy in her bosom, baby Obed. And it's proclaimed here uh, that it's not Ruth's son. I mean, it is Ruth's son, but it's proclaimed here as Naomi's son. Hmm. In other words, it's the continuing of her family line. Uh, she left uh, full, she came back empty, and Yahweh has filled her back up. That's divine reversal. What do you think, Nick? No, I think that's exactly right. We we see Naomi, her emptiness is filled as she takes the child under her lap, cares for him. Uh, the women, interestingly, name the boy. Usually um, it's the father who names the son, but uh, it's the women here of the city that do that. We find out his identity in the grand scheme of things. Uh-oh, Obed, father of Jesse, father of David. Wow, that's interesting. And it does complete sort of the symmetry of this book, the overall structure of the book. The neighbor women who had declared, is this Naomi? Back in 1 verse 19, now they declare, Naomi has a son, and they give him this name. So, yeah, a lot of divine reversal here. So verse 21, yeah, here we are with this genealogy, and conspicuously absent are... Elimelech and Malon. So where are they? Why why are Elimelech and Malon not mentioned in the genealogy? I mean, wasn't the point of the Leveret Law to preserve the name of the dead? Yeah, it that was the point, Nick. It was to preserve their name so they wouldn't be forgotten. And yet here we are. We wouldn't know of Malon or Elimelech other than the Book of Ruth because they're never mentioned ever again in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Just in the Book of Ruth. So it would seem here that the author is not interested in giving an historical genealogy. He's interested in giving a theological genealogy. Boaz, the birth father, is listed instead of Elimelech or Malin. Those are the deceased who have a right to be remembered through the firstborn son of the Leverite marriage, Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, right? So why? Why is Boaz forever remembered as the father? That's because Boaz's, I think, this, here's my theory, right? Boaz's genealogy contains the righteous Rahab. Hmm. Rahab is uh, the wife of Salmon, who is uh, the father of Boaz, right? So that's another Gentile woman who was righteous and acceptable to Yahweh. And so I think the writer uses Boaz's genealogy to show the continuing use of righteous Gentiles to be a part of and to bless Israel and to be a part of this bigger scheme that Yahweh has in mind for the redemption of all the nations. There is another interesting thing about this genealogy here, verses 18 through 22 is where the genealogy is found. Oh boy, genealogy talk. Um, uh, Alex, talk to us a second here. Does this genealogy... I mean, the timeline is very compressed if we take this at face value. <clears throat> Salmon and Rahab all the way to King David, covering the entire judges period, essentially. Right. 
Does this genealogy intentionally skip over generations? It has to, Nick. It has to. It's hard to imagine that Boaz's father could really be Salmon, who apparently you know married the famous Rahab in the days of Joshua. How does one account for the discrepancy of a couple hundred years? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, that the timeline doesn't fit. It won't work. The only solution is to acknowledge that it was common practice for biblical writers, and you can find this in other places in the Bible. Um, I mean, Matthew probably does it in his uh, genealogy of Jesus to give the symmetry of the 14 generations between uh, David and Jesus and um, what was it? Abraham yeah. to David to Jesus. Yeah, and 14, so, 14, 14. Right, right. Well, that's, that's, we know that that's not completely historical. I mean, it's true. Those are all real people. They existed, but they skipped generations. And so the solution is to acknowledge that it was common practice for biblical writers to skip over several generations when recording genealogies in order to make a theological point, a theological point. Now, that sure messes up everyone's efforts to do biblical chronology. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. It gets really hard to pin down for sure, like, well, so-and-so had so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, so this is how much time happened in between here and here. It's just like, well, not if they're skipping people. <laughs> if we know they're yeah. skipping people, good luck making a timeline. It'll never work. <laughs> the other thing about this uh, genealogy is it's consistent everywhere it's found. Yeah. Here you'd mentioned Matthew one. It's also mentioned in Second Chronicles or First Chronicles chapter two. Yes, right. And and it's the same everywhere. So that's they were very consistent in maintaining that. Right, right. Which makes uh, one wonder: is it a consistent theological point being made? Mm-hmm. So trying not mm-hmm. to lose that that effort because they knew they knew the Leverite law. They knew, especially by the time of Chronicles and by Matthew, they knew that. The father of that firstborn of the Leverett marriage should be considered and named either Malin or Elimelech, but he's not. So, (laughs) Nick, we're at the end of our story, verse 22. This whole story ends with the name of King David. Why does the story end with mentioning King David? I mean, that's kind of a giveaway, right? What, whatever the story ends with, that's kind of the point. What, what, why is David the point here? With the exception of Moses. David is, no doubt, the most important Old Testament character. He is the subject of First Second Samuel, First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. He composed numerous psalms, and he's the subject of many prophetic utterances. I think we're getting the background story on where this very, very important character came from. That's right. And I think you've uncovered a little bombshell for us, haven't you, Alex? Little, yeah, yeah. Well, um, first, let me let me acknowledge that you know you're right. David is so important in the Old Testament. Um, he's the future king of Israel, right? Any slander right. that would be hurled to discredit David's uh, divine anointing as king uh, because of his sullied ancestry. I mean, if you remember, there's a lot of questioning around David being anointed in the first place because he wasn't brought out with uh, Jesse's other sons, was he? And nope. Samuel has to say, "Hey, are you sure these are all your sons? Is there any other son?" And Jesse's like, well, there is this one other son. She's like, well, what in the world, Jesse? Why, why do you not want your other son here? What's, what's the problem here? And so there's all kinds of uh, rumor and slander already surrounding David when he's anointed. So uh, people who would cast any kind of, um, you know, muck or whatever at the, to, to sully his ancestry, this book would quickly overturn it. 
because it brings into picture, no, this is Yahweh who's doing this. And what Yahweh does is right. And here is the bombshell, right? Here's the bombshell for the book of Ruth. According to Jewish tradition, and this would be old Jewish tradition, well attested to in the different uh, rabbinic literature, Goliath was the son of Ruth's sister-in-law, Orpah. What? <laughs> what? Like I said, it's well attested to. Um, several citations you can find for this. Um, it's even in Josephus's uh, contemporary Pseudophilo. So there's Philo of Alexandria, then there was writings of Pseudophilo. Um, why they call him Pseudophilo, it's a long contrived thing. I won't torture you with it. So <laughs> mm-hmm. here's what Pseudophilo says, though. I have it, right? I have the quote. And this is from a, a series called Outside the Bible, Ancient Jewish Writings Related to Scripture. It's a three-volume commentary. And so in Pseudophilo, in his account of um, David fighting Goliath, here's the little conversation that happened. It says, David went out to Goliath and said to him, Hear this word before you die. Were not the two women from whom you and I were born sisters? Your hmm. mother was Orpah and my mother Ruth. Orpah chose for herself the gods of the Philistines and went after them. But Ruth chose for herself the ways of the Lord and walked in them. Now there have been born from Orpah you and your brothers. Because you rose up today and have come to destroy Israel, behold, I too, your kinsmen, have come to avenge my people. For after your death, your three brothers too will fall into my hands. Then you will say to your mother, he who was born from your sister has not spared us. <laughs> hmm. Wait, wasn't Orpah a Moabite and Goliath a Philistine? Yeah, that's true. But the gods of the Philistines um, could have had more uh, influence around just what was considered the territory of the Philistines at the time ah. of David's ancestors and during David's own lifetime. So, yeah, and plus it's it's pseudophilo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. It's it's rabbinic uh, midrash. It's uh, it's riffing. It's um, it's it's interesting exegetical mm. uh, commentary. <laughs> and yet, <laughs> what if? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Think of though what he goes on to mention too that um, there was an angel with David that uh, empowered David to kill Goliath. It's like, oh, interesting, you know. I, was always wondering how a stone made it all the way through Goliath's big skull, but <laughs> apparently he had a little uh, angelic help there, give him a little uh, nitrous oxide behind that stone. So <laughs> but anyway, pretty crazy, and it was well attested to that here we have Goliath versus David, not just a battle of um, relatives, but a battle of deities, Goliath's deities versus David's Yahweh. So, Nick, you have any final thoughts on the book of Ruth? I sure do. So, I've written a commentary on Ruth. Um, I have it right here. There it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's actually available on um, my website, life, L-I-F-E, from thepulpit.wordpress.com in its entirety. And just some of the application points that I could, if I could summarize these just briefly. Someone has said, coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous. 
throughout the book of Yah- of Ruth, Yahweh is mentioned, but he never speaks. It doesn't say that he directly intervenes in affairs, except at the beginning and the end, with uh, providing bread for Bethlehem and then Ruth granting her conception. The things that happen to people today, I believe, are more than the sum total of random acts of a dispassionate, complex universe. I think Ruth teaches us, the church today, that we may not always see God. God is sovereign, and he is in control of everything. We do exercise our free will. We choose one thing or another. And yet, by the eyes of faith, we acknowledge the hand of God over all of our circumstances. We know from the book of Judges that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. People, they were a law unto themselves. They were defining good and evil according to their personal preferences. I think Christians today are faced with an increasingly post-Christian culture and society. More and more people are doing what is right in their own eyes. The law of Christ is abandoned for a do-what-you-feel morality. Ruth shows us that while everyone may be doing what's right in their own eyes, there are still people who are doing their best to honor the one true and only God in spite of their given circumstances. And I think we, as the Lord's people, need to likewise walk before the Lord in holiness and righteousness, and we can still honor God even in in the midst of a culture that seems to be rapidly abandoning God. And I think the the Christological significance of Ruth cannot be overlooked, and it's it's twofold. Um, in his providence, God sustains the seed of David, who is ultimately the one through whom comes the Christ. And then also, you have the typology of the kinsman redeemer here, which is a, a big point that people like to hit on and emphasize um, through the offspring of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, comes the kinsman redeemer of all people, Jew and Gentile, as you mentioned, Alex. So Christ is the one who is near us, God in flesh. He demonstrates steadfast love. He redeems us from sin by his blood on the cross. And in this quaint little story of redeeming love in Ruth, I believe we have a shadow of the gospel of the redeeming love of Christ. Much more can be said. Again, um, my commentary available all free over on lifefromthepulpit.wordpress.com. But those are some application points that I walk away with from the book of Ruth. Alex, what say you? No, I uh, think you covered it. That was a good good summary. Well done. You know, I think this brings us to our one-minute sermons. Sure does. This is for all our aspiring and practicing... uh, preachers out there here's a little yeah. step up a little first step uh, get ahead of the game here for a sunday sermon that's right sunday's coming and so we're going to give you we're going to do our best give you in one minute uh some material here that's to right get you started better get the timer out we take we take a, this seriously yeah while you do that we take a song title from any genre alex doesn't know what i've selected for him i don't know what he selected for me but on the fly, we're going to come up with a text and the, the startings of a, of a sermon uh, just for you, O preacher. So <laughs> so uh, whose turn is it to go first this time? I forget. 
I, th- uh, I think it's yours. Yeah, I think you're right. This is number four. Okay, I'm ready, Nick. So we're going to the 90s here, Alex. I, oh. Uh, <laughs> a group called Enigma. <laughs> you may remember this song. The song is entitled Return to Innocence. One minute on the clock, Return sing, to Innocence. Can you see me a little riff? Because I don't, I don't. It's not ringing a bell. <laughs> okay. It's not ringing a bell. Is this a rock song? No, no. It's actually like a like an easy listening type. Um, somehow it gained mainstream attention. There's a, a, a Native American, I think, that's singing part of the song as well. With the um, I forget the exact word for it. But anyway, return to innocence. You're, you're, you're buying time. <laughs> One minute on the clock. Here we go. Return. Nope. To innocence. You know, the beauty about the gospel is that we are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And as uh, somebody once said, just a, justified means it's just if, as if I'd never sinned. Uh, we know that we do sin, and we know that even as Christians, we sin and we fall short of the glory of God. But the grace of Jesus Christ covers us. First John chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 7 says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then uh, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's a continual cleansing. So once you have returned to the innocence of your soul in Christ Jesus, he keeps you there, and he keeps you clean. And that's the gospel. Nice. <laughs> Well done. Boom. <laughs> Coming in under time. Return to innocence. Um, okay, Nick. Good choice. Good choice. Again, I'm going to have to look up that song. I don't know what it sounds like. Um, your song, however, I think you and perhaps many of our audience will remember. It's two from the 90s. And this is a little ditty uh, called Mo Money, Mo Problems. <laughs> By the Notorious B.I.G. I highly recommend the radio edited version. And uh, and it does. This little Diddy does accompany Diddy. Before P. Diddy, he was Puff Daddy. Now, Mo Money, Mo Problems, one minute on the clock, Nick, and go. I can't. You're going to have to do the homework. In Deuteronomy, one of the things that were said uh, of the king, he wasn't supposed to accumulate a bunch of stuff, a bunch of vast wealth, and yet that's exactly what Solomon did. He accumulated all kinds of gold and silver and everything, and man, mo money, mo problems. He had all kinds of problems with idolatry, and uh, it just led down a dark path. So it's no wonder, I think, that when Christ comes, and he tells us not to lay up treasures for ourselves on earth. This is Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Uh, rather, we are to lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven. You see, the thing is, while on earth it may be mo' money, mo' problems down here to accumulate as much stuff as we can, get caught up in the rat race of greed and all that, when it comes to heaven, the more treasure we have up there, the greater it will be for our reward and so, yeah, let's, uh, let's focus on storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven. All right. Very oh, good. The more money we come across, the more problems we see. That's it. I don't know the rap part. I just know the, the chorus. 
B I G P O P P N. You know it? <laughs> Just that part. <laughs> shame, shame. I know your name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nick. Well, I think that's going to going to do it for this episode isn't it that's right hey go and you can find the podcast in the itunes store the google play music store and it's uh this podcast is available there leave a review in those respective places Uh, that'll help us get the word out about the podcast you can download all the episodes to your particular device and be sure to send your questions if you have any to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear what you think about the podcast and anything you might have concerning the bible so we'd love to answer your questions and like nick said feel free to repost this on any of your social media and we thank you for tuning in once again to another episode of swordplay swordplay